If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn them to Micah chapter 5. It's in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. I'll give you a second to find that book. But in Micah chapter 5, Micah the prophet prophesies of the birth of a shepherd king who would be born in Bethlehem. And what we want to see this morning is the setting of that prophecy, when that, when that occurred, when he said that, and what it meant for the people of Micah's day and what it means, the implications of that for us today. If you're not familiar with Micah, he was a prophet who spoke forth the words of God in the 8th century before Christ, some 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was a contemporary of several other prophets like Isaiah and Amos and Hosea. They prophesied during the same time. Now, when we go to a book like Micah, we need to remind ourselves, because we've been walking as a church through Paul's letter to the Roman church. And the books of prophecy that, we've, that we find in the Old Testament are quite a bit different than letters like what Paul wrote. The letter that we're going through um, that Paul wrote to the Romans was, was written primarily for, for one time period in one setting. And it's, it's really made to be read as a letter in one setting to one group of people. But the books of prophecy and Micah as well, it, it, these are books that are a collection of prophecies that are written over a long period of time. For Micah, these prophecies were written, were spoken forth from him, from God, through him to the southern kingdom of Judah over a period of some 40 years. And so some of these prophecies were given very early on in his uh, career as a prophet, and they came to fulfillment, and then others were given later in his career. They were given as we see in the very first verse of the first chapter of Micah, says that these, these came to him, these prophecies came to him during the reign of three different kings of the southern kingdom of, of, of Judah. He prophesied during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Both Jotham and Hezekiah were good kings of Judah, but Ahaz was not. He was a very bad king. But the passage that we're looking at in Micah chapter 5 this morning comes from the latter period of his prophecy during the reign of Hezekiah, the good king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Now what was happening during that time? Let's get an idea of the context before we read this passage. What was happening was that the great Assyrian army was pressing in on the southern kingdom of Judah. The great military power of, of that day, of Micah's time during Hezekiah's rule, was the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was pressing in on the southern kingdom of Judah. Earlier prophecies in this book, uh, Micah talks about how the Assyrian army is going to invade and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's exactly what had come to pass. But now, the Assyrian army is encamped outside of, of Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah, preparing to lay siege to it. So that's the setting here. We've got the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrian army, led by its king, King Sennacherib, and they're, they're preparing to lay siege to Jerusalem, preparing to invade Judah, which was led by King Hezekiah. So let's find out what Micah has to say about this in Micah chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. 
Church, this is God's word. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Let's pray. Father, it's a privilege this morning to gather as a church family and worship you in these songs that confess our belief that the manger is best viewed against the backdrop of the cross. We know that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to put on flesh and become one of us so that he might die in our place on a cross paying fully and completely the price that must be paid for our rebellion against you so that by faith in you we might be reconciled to you and know you as our God and King. Father, may you speak to us from your word this morning so that we are encouraged to celebrate this Christmas for what it was intended to be, a display of your glory and a display of the gospel. Would you do that this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see in verse 1 of chapter 5 that Micah is calling on Jerusalem to essentially prepare for battle. The Assyrian army is outside your gates. He says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. He says, they're they're preparing to invade. Get get ready. Muster your troops. Get ready. And then he says, with a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. To be struck on the cheek was considered to be the ultimate humiliation. And certainly in this case, King Sennacherib was humiliating King Hezekiah because he was requiring an enormous tribute to be paid to the Assyrians so that they wouldn't invade. And ultimately, that was itself not enough. But this tribute was so great that it required King Hezekiah to take some of the gold out of the temple in Jerusalem in order to pay this enormous tribute. Incredibly humiliating both to King Hezekiah and to the people of the southern kingdom of Judah, the people of Yahweh and the Lord. 
And so it was incredibly humiliating. And so verse 1 is, is Micah saying, get ready. Prepare for battle. They're encamped against you. They're about to invade. And if they do, it will be devastating. But then verse 2 moves directly into hope. And this is where we see the crux of what I want us to look at this morning. Verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. So this is where we see the connection between the prophet Micah and the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew records this story in his birth narrative in Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men, so this is the Magi that we speak of, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So when King Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. He wanted to be the only king that was worshipped and so he was troubled. And so he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and he inquired of them where the Christ was was to be born. According to your prophecies, where is this one who was said to be born as king of the Jews? They told him, verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." So we we see the context here. The Assyrian army is gathered to invade the southern kingdom of Judah. They're preparing to lay siege to Jerusalem. And what does God do? God gives them this prophecy that the Lord is going to cause a, a ruler to be born in Bethlehem. This prophecy that he gives through his servant Micah, that a ruler, a king, will be born in Bethlehem. And that this ruler's coming forth is from of old. It's from ancient of days. It was planned in eternity past. And that this ruler would shepherd my people Israel. So all all the chief priests and and the scribes of the people, all of the religious leaders of the Jews, all of them knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. It was prophesied, and they knew that because Micah had foretold it to be so And so what we have here in Micah 5.2 is a birth announcement of the Christ, a birth announcement of Jesus. A shepherd king is coming from Bethlehem. And then we have Matthew recording this as having been fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, which is what we celebrate at Christmas. Now, as we look at this prophecy this morning in this passage, and we see the setting of it, and we see what Micah says the Messiah will do, and what he will accomplish, and what he will do for his people. We also notice that Micah foresees three stages of fulfillment of this prophecy. Actually, he doesn't foresee the three stages, he just gives the prophecy, but there are three stages of fulfillment. First of all, there's the current time, 
So there's going to be fulfillment, partial fulfillment of some of this prophecy during Micah's day in his own time. Secondly, there is a future time. Some of this prophecy is going to be, find fulfillment in the future time in which Jesus is born in Bethlehem. But then there's also an end time prophecy looking to the ultimate fulfillment of the large, large portion of this prophecy when God pulls a drawstring on the timeline of the universe and ushers in the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. So because that's the case, we need to understand how prophecy works. As with all prophecy, we remember when we read prophecy that sometimes the prophets foretold the words of God, but they, didn't, they did so without full knowledge of exactly how all the pieces were going to fit together. Many times the prophet's view of the future is like the view that we have of a mountain range when we view a mountain range from far away. When we, when we look at a mountain range from far away, it looks as though the, the, it's just a, a line of, of, of mountain peaks lined up right next to one another. But what we don't see from our perspective miles away is that those mountain peaks are separated by grand valleys, but we don't see those valleys from our perspective because we're miles away from it. The same is true with biblical prophecy. Sometimes prophecies are about the current time of the day in which it was given. Sometimes it's about a future time when Jesus is born. Other times it it's, finds fulfillment in the end time. And we find all of those all placed together sometimes. And so we have to use context and we have to use other places of the Bible in order to see the valleys between them so as to piece together the stage of fulfillment to which the prophecy is referring. Identify to which stage of fulfillment the prophecy belongs. The current time of Micah, the future time of Jesus' birth, or the end time. Now as we do this, we're going to see three things about the the birth announcement of the Christ here in Micah chapter 5 that are good news for us that we can celebrate together at Christmas. And the first of those we find in verse 2 itself. Note that in verse 2 here, Micah, as he's speaking the very words of God, he points out the relative insignificance and unimpressiveness of this little town called Bethlehem. It says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler. So Bethlehem means city of bread. Ephrathah, which is just another word for uh, Bethlehem, means fruitful. And Micah says, Bethlehem, who are you? You are too little to be among the clans of Judah. In other words, Bethlehem, who are you? Who are you, little Bethlehem? You're not even important enough to be listed among the clans of Judah. You are just a little, meager, humble little town. You're not like Jerusalem. You're you're not like Jericho. You're not like Caesarea Philippi or one of the other more impressive cities of Judah. You're just little Bethlehem. Insignificant unimpressive, relatively unimportant, 
humble, meager, lowly Bethlehem. But from you forth for me, the Lord says, a ruler who will shepherd my people. From you shall come forth the Messiah, God in flesh. Why did God plan it this way? Why, why, why did God bring his son through Bethlehem? Why not cause his son, why not, why not choose Jerusalem, the capital, to be the birthplace of this shepherd king, this ruler who would shepherd his people, the Messiah? Isn't that a more fitting birthplace for a king? Why would God do it this way? We know that part of the reason is because this was fulfillment of the prophecy about the Messiah in other places that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. And, and Bethlehem was David's hometown. It was where he grew up as a young shepherd boy, the youngest son of Jesse. But to say that Micah <clears throat> was prophesying that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Messiah simply because it was the city of David misses the whole point of verse 2. Verse 2, we see, is all about demonstrating the insignificance and the relative unimpressiveness of Bethlehem. But if Micah here is primarily referring to Bethlehem because it is the birthplace of David, well, then that makes Bethlehem something great, something important, and something very impressive, which is not at all what he's trying to do in verse 2. In verse 2, he's displaying not the greatness of Bethlehem, but its meagerness and humbleness. Not its impressiveness and importance as the city of David, but its unimpressiveness and unimportance. Not its significance, but its insignificance. And yet, in its insignificance, it is to be the birthplace of this king. Why is that? Why did God choose lowly Bethlehem Instead of a more impressive city like Jerusalem with its high walls and large temple and grand buildings and large population, why did God choose a smelly stable instead of an opulent and comfortable inn? Why did God choose a manger, an animal's feeding trough, Instead of a, maybe a baby's cradle made of the finest craftsmanship. Partly, I think it's because of fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that we find in Isaiah that the, that the Messiah's first advent, his first coming would be like that of a suffering servant. But also, and more pertinent to this passage out of Micah this morning, it was to serve as a means of nullifying our boasting so that we might boast only in the grace of God. See, if it had been Jerusalem that God had chosen as the birthplace of this king, then the people of Jerusalem would, would, would have boasted, well, of course it's Jerusalem. Look at our fine city. Look at our high walls. Look at our grand. Of course God would choose for his son to be born to our city. If God had chosen a comfortable inn, some innkeeper could have boasted in his inn. If, if God had chosen a beautifully crafted 
cradle than some craftsman could have boasted in his craftsmanship. But as it is, no citizen of Bethlehem would boast in the greatness of their little humble town. No innkeeper would boast of the stable out back where he kept the animals. And no craftsman would boast in the craftsmanship of a feeding trough. Instead, in God's choosing in these instances, he both nullified man's boasting and made it such that God alone would be the recipient of our boasting. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that, why did he do this? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, Paul goes on to say, you are in Christ Jesus. You are in faith in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So God, God chose Bethlehem to demonstrate that, that God's choosing of who will benefit from the blessing of the Messiah and has his salvific blessings is not merited. God's choosing is not merited by our greatness or our importance or our significance. Instead, his choosing whether it is his choosing of a birthplace or as we learned in Romans 9, 10, and 11, the choosing, his choosing of those whom he will elect to enjoy his saving grace, his choosing is done freely by himself alone so that he alone will receive the glory. So the first thing that we learn from Jesus' birth announcement of, uh, in, in Micah is that God's choice of the insignificant serve to ensure that he would receive all the glory. Both in his choosing of his birthplace and his choosing of those whom he would bring to salvation. Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. Not ours, but according to the purpose of his will. And why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So, church, at Christmas, we declare glory not to us or to anything that we might merit because of our significance or our importance or our impressiveness, but no, we declare along with the Christmas angels, glory to God in the highest. Now, the remainder of this passage that we're looking at this morning in verses 3 through 6 tell us what the birth of this shepherd king will mean and what the implications will be. But we're going to have to wrestle with that question. Given the prophecies that we find here, what stage of redemptive history will find their fulfillment? Was it the current time of Micah? Was it the future time of the birth of Christ in Bethlehem? Or... Is it the end time of when God pulls a drawstring on the timeline of history? And the cool thing is, in these verses, the answer is going to be yes. 
It's going to be all three of those. We're going to see all three of those stages of redemptive history showing fulfillment of these prophecies. First, we see an aspect of this prophecy that was fulfilled during Micah's time. Now, we see this, first of all, in, in verses 5 and 6. That's one of the ways in which, places in which we see fulfillment, at least partial fulfillment during Micah's time. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, And he shall be their peace, speaking of Jesus, he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Speaking of the army and the leaders who will, who will be raised up to battle against him. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. Speaking of a war here. And the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. Now, the prophecy, the prophecy here is partially fulfilled in Micah's day. We see the story of this in 2 Kings chapter 19. In that story, we discover that on the night before the Syrians are to invade Jerusalem, the night before they are to lay siege to the city, an angel of the Lord goes into the, camps of the, into the camp of the Assyrians and strikes down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. The next morning, King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, Wakes up, he surveys the destruction, the devastation of his army, and he retreats back into Assyria. The Lord had been their peace, as he prophesied in verse 5. The Lord had delivered them from the Assyrians, as this prophecy foretold in verse 6. In fact, many scholars believe that the angel of the Lord that we see in 2 Kings chapter 19 is in fact a theophany a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself bringing peace to his people in Judah, delivering them from the Assyrians as was foretold. Another part of this prophecy that was partially fulfilled in the current time is, is that which we find in the opening line of verse 3. Look at verse 3. It says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Now what's really cool about verse 3 is that in that one verse, we see prophecy that finds its fulfillment both in the current time and in the future time of Jesus' birth, as well as, I believe, in the end time. So look at this. According to verse 3, he says that the Lord is going to give up his people for a time. The act of God giving up his people, as we know, is an act of his discipline of his people. A chastisement of his people because of their sin, because of their rebellion against him, because of their worship of false idols. He talks about this earlier in the book of prophecy in Micah. So this was God chastising his people. So he will give them up to their enemies. And that prophecy found fulfillment, not necessarily in Micah's day, but we can kind of pull a, a larger envelope around the current time because it found fulfillment not in the time of the Assyrian um, potential invasion, but instead, a hundred years later, in the Babylonian invasion of Judah and its destruction at the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. So we could say current day fulfillment, though not in Micah's day, certainly current day before the advent of Christ. 
But Micah says that God will only give them up to their enemy, he says, quote, for a time. And when, when would that time end? He says that time would end when she who is in labor has given birth. As we've seen, this is, this is clear prophecy referring to the birth of Christ in Bethlehem as he is born to the Virgin Mary who is betrothed to Joseph of Bethlehem. And so there's prophetic fulfillment at least in the birth of, of, of Christ through the woman who is in labor who gives birth. So there's prophetic fulfillment during Jesus' day. And then what does Micah prophesy will happen after she who is in labor gives birth? Look at the, look at the end of verse 3. It says, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So who are the rest of his brothers? So he's talking about the Messiah. So the, the brothers of Messiah, the ethnic brothers of Messiah. So he's talking here about the Israelites, the ethnic Jews. So at that time, he says, the rest of the Jews will return to the people of Israel. Now, if you know Bible history, you know that that did not happen at the time of the birth of Christ. And Micah doesn't say that it will. It just says it'll happen after. But he doesn't tell us how far. So we need to look at it from context in other parts of the Bible to see this valley that's in between. In verse 3, we see the mountain peaks. But as we look at this, we see the valleys in between them. There's current time fulfillment. There is fulfillment in the time of Jesus. And there is end time fulfillment here in this last phrase. This phrase here that his brothers, the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. I believe that this is reference to what we saw at the end of Romans chapter 11 when we were going through Romans chapter 11 together, where Paul said this. He said, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. That was from Romans 11 verses 25 and 26. So when we went through that, we, we, we said that what this appeared to be was that there would be a time in the future when all of the elect Gentiles whom God has elected to himself would be gathered together as the church, which Paul tells us is the true spiritual Israel. All of those whom God is calling to himself from the nations would come to faith in Jesus and when all of those whom he has elected come to faith in Jesus, when that fullness occurs, then at that time, God will lift this temporary hardening from his people, which I believe Micah is describing here as giving up his people to their enemies. God lifts that temporary hardening of Israel, and then the rest of his brothers... The rest of the remnant of Israel shall return. Or as Paul put it for us in Romans 11, in this way all Israel will be saved. Now, now whether or not that's what uh, is being referred to here, whether or not the final salvation of ethnic Israel is in view here in Micah chapter 5 verse 3 or not, certainly there is no question that the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy in this passage is still yet to come. Look at verse 4. And he, speaking again of this ruler who would shepherd my people, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be 
their peace. Certainly there, there was temporary and yet ultimately incomplete fulfillment of this prophecy in Micah's day, but that fulfillment was just a shadow of the fulfillment to come. Certainly also in our day we see an incomplete fulfillment of this prophecy in today's church age between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ, between his first coming and his return. For certainly Jesus stands today at the right hand of the throne of God. Certainly today he shepherds his flock, the church, in the strength of the Lord. He is the head of the church. He is the good shepherd today. And he shepherds his flock today. And certainly we who are in Christ by faith today, we dwell secure and we know him as our peace today. But oh, how great will be the final and ultimate and complete fulfillment of this prophecy when Jesus returns. Then surely Jesus will stand in final judgment Then he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. We almost have pictures of the Revelation prophecy. And then the second half of verse 4 tells us what will be the experience of the church, which is the true spiritual Israel of faith. He says, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And when Jesus returns at his second coming, we who know him will surely dwell secure for all of eternity. No longer embattled against sin, against our own flesh, no longer embattled against the world around us, but then we will be delivered finally and completely from the very presence of sin and evil, and we will dwell secure for all eternity, shepherded by the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be great to the ends of the earth. And then verse 5 adds, he shall be their peace. Now there are a couple of ways to see the fulfillment of this prophecy that this Christ shall be their peace. One aspect of this fulfillment is that in the new heaven and the new earth, and, and in the millennial reign, if there is one, if you affirm that, I do, but you don't have to, that's okay. But in the millennial reign, and certainly in the final state of the new heaven and the, and the new earth, there will be geopolitical and military shalom. There will be peace. We know this because Micah talked about it in the previous chapter. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. He's talking about the, the second coming. He's talking about the, the, the millennium or the, or the new heaven and the new, and the new earth. And he says this, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And what will happen? They shall beat their swords into plowshares. They shall beat their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. So this is prophecy either of the millennial reign of Christ or of the final state of the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And the war and strife that so characterized the time of Micah's day and our day as well would be no more would be replaced by shalom, by peace. So when we celebrate Christmas, 
we celebrate with anticipation and eager and expectation of his return. The first coming foreshadows the second coming. And the celebration of the first advent should include eager expectation of his second advent. So our Christmas celebration ought to include an eager longing for his return and and all that that return will mean for us as we will dwell with our great shepherd in restored earth, a new Jerusalem where all things are made new, where there will be perfect peace. But also the most complete fulfillment of this prophecy that Christ will be their peace, Christ will be our peace, is that the first advent of Christ that we celebrate during Christmas, that first advent culminated with the purchase of our peace with God. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was very clear in the book of Romans and and many other places that we had no peace apart from Christ, that we were at enmity with God, that God and man were enemies because of our sin and rebellion against the one who made us for his glory. So there was no peace between God and man and no hope that we could ever cause there to be peace between us and God. But according to Paul, since we have been justified by faith, justified again means to be declared righteous, that we don't have any righteousness of our own, but by faith in Jesus as our substitute, we are credited, imputed with his righteousness. And since we are now declared righteous, that is justified by faith, Then on the basis of that, Paul says, now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to how Paul encouraged the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, for he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he may create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, making peace between men and peace between men and God. He goes on in verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, preaching peace to the Gentiles and peace to the Jews. Verse Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So, So at Christmas, we celebrate the grace of God in giving us his son's righteousness by faith in him. And that his death, burial, and resurrection in our place for us purchased peace with God. Which is far greater and far more significant and far more important than any geopolitical or military peace. We need peace with God. And this is what God has provided in the provision of his resurrected son. So as the angels who announced the birth of the Messiah to the shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks outside of Bethlehem, said, 
glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Peace among those who are in Christ, who are robed with his righteousness, declared justified by faith, and therefore have peace with God through Christ. For those who are in Christ, the wrath of God was satisfied by Jesus' death in our place. For those who are in Christ, there is peace with God. As he says, a cessation of hostilities, enemies transformed into children of God. And so what do we learn here from Micah's birth announcement of the Messiah in Micah chapter 5? Three things. One we've already mentioned, that God's choice of the insignificant It's for the purpose of ensuring that God gets the glory. That's why he chose lowly Bethlehem. And that's why he chose us, you and I, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord. He chose you not on the basis of your significance or merit or anything about you, but according to his sovereign grace for the purpose of displaying the majesty of his glory. So, At this celebration of the birth of his son, which occurred in Bethlehem, so that he might receive all our boasting and not ourselves, let us boast in Christ and let us glorify God at Christmas. But two other lessons that we pull out of this passage. The first is that the first advent of Christ should be celebrated as an answer to God's promises. The first advent of Christ should be celebrated as an answer to God's promises. We we should note here that as Micah is talking about all of this prophecy, that he could have skipped the prophecy of the first advent and just skipped straight to the second advent because that's where we find the ultimate fulfillment, right? That's where we find the, the completion of all of this in the second advent. So why did he even mention this? Why did he talk about the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem? Why did he even mention his first coming? Well, the reason is because in his first advent, Christ made provision for that which is culminated in his second advent. See, all this that we see in verses 3 through 6 that we anticipate at his return, that we anticipate and look forward to the culmination of its fulfillment at the second coming of Christ, it was purchased at the time of his first advent. As we've said before, we are to see the manger against the backdrop of the cross. We, we, are, to, we are to see the baby in the manger against the backdrop of a savior on a cross at calvary both his birth and his substitutionary death burial and resurrection comprise the first advent and so the second advent of christ is only great because of what he accomplished in his first advent the first advent then is to us a reminder that God is keeping his promise to his people. He promised that one would come, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, he promised that one would come from the seed of Eve, from the offspring of Eve, who would crush the head of Satan. 
And in the first advent of Jesus in Bethlehem, it was a reminder that God was keeping his promise. It was a reminder to the Judeans in the 8th century before Christ as the Assyrian army gathered outside the gates of Jerusalem, preparing to invade and destroy just as they had destroyed the larger northern kingdom of Israel. This prophecy that a child would be born in Bethlehem who would be a shepherd king, a ruler who would shepherd his people, this was encouragement to them as this impending doom was outside, this encouraged them because it reminded them that God had not forgotten them, that God was keeping his promises. And so, too, for us today, in whatever we find ourselves in, we are reminded in the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem that God is keeping his promises. What a great hope that is to us. And then finally, the second advent of Christ should be anticipated and expectantly waiting for the culmination of that victory that Christ won in his first advent. See, at Christmas, the first advent is that which we look back to and celebrate. And we celebrate the birth of Christ and its implication and his his birth as the provision that God made for the sins of man. But at Christmas time, we also look forward with eager expectation and great anticipation for the second advent of Christ when the culmination of prophetic fulfillment occurs, where we will dwell with him forever in perfect peace and perfect Shalom. You see, just as the Judeans of Micah's day longed for the birth of this shepherd king from Bethlehem and found hope in that in the midst of their trial, so we today, we long for the return of this shepherd king to put our enemies to flight, to do away with sin once and for all to bring peace, shalom with God, to live and reign with us forever. May our Christmas celebrations be filled with looking back at his first advent and looking forward expectantly to his return. Let us pray. God, we thank you so much for this passage of Scripture and all that it means to us. The advent of Christ, this advent season, this Christmas season is a time of celebrating hope and peace. The hope and the peace that is ours in Christ Jesus. But Lord, we know that there are those among us, perhaps in this room, perhaps in our homes, certainly in our neighborhoods and community in our schools and workplaces that don't have that hope and don't know that peace because they have not been reconciled back to you, Jesus Christ. Lord, if there are those among us this morning in this room, we lift them up to you and we pray, Lord God, that you would give them the faith to trust in Jesus as their only hope 
that they would not rest on their own merit or significance or accomplishment or religious acts or piety, but that they would rest only on the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Would you walk them across the line of faith? Would you transform them from enemies of God into children of God? Would you give them new life? Welcome them into your family and give them this expectant and eager hope and anticipation of the return of your son when you will make all things new. God, may our Christmas celebrations this year be so much more than Christmas trees and stockings and elves and presents. May it be about glorifying you and boasting in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and longing for his return to bring shalom finally and completely and eternally. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name.